Welcome to another episode of Odyssey and Muse. I'm John Jerko, and this is a podcast where we explore adventure, creativity, and living life without a map. Every week, we talk to filmmakers, adventure junkies, writers, musicians, vagabonds, people that veer off the beaten path. We dig into topics like how to execute ambitious projects, overcome extreme obstacles, and find the things that drive you. Find your true north. Hey, everyone. I'm excited for this week's episode with world traveler and blogger Gary Arndt. But first, a quick reminder. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to visit our website at odysseyandmuse.com. There you can read the show notes for each episode, which include links to everything we talk about and a list of takeaways so you can get some value at a glance. You can also sign up for our newsletter, find ways to support the show, follow us on social media, leave us a comment, and most importantly, subscribe to the show and rate us on iTunes. A big thank you to everyone that has taken the time to listen to and share the show. Couldn't do this without your support. On to this week's episode. Gary Arndt has mastered the art of world travel. He sold his house in 2007 and has been on the road ever since. A short time into his journey, he decided to take his blogging and photography seriously, and within four years, he went from amateur to winning multiple awards. Gary has been to all seven continents and has visited over 175 countries and territories. He has one of the larger collections of National Geographic magazines in the world. He's gone dog sledding in the Yukon, bungee jumped in New Zealand, landed on an aircraft carrier, ridden in a Formula One car, and scuba dived all around the world. In this conversation, we talk about the genesis of Gary's travel bug, how he taught himself the art of photography and blogging, some of the biggest mistakes beginner bloggers make, the worst question Gary constantly gets asked, what he wishes people would ask him, some of Gary's recent adventures, and so much more. Whether you're a traveler or a creative, there's something in this episode for you. So without further delay, enjoy the show. Okay, Gary, welcome to the show. How you been doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, where are you at right now? Are you in Minneapolis? I'm in Minneapolis. Yeah, I got an apartment here a couple months ago after nine years of wandering around the world. Oh, wow. So you're kind of hanging out in town for a little bit? <laughs> well, it gives me a place to go between trips now. Uh, after nine years of doing it, I kind of got burned out and it became increasingly difficult to actually get business done in hotel rooms with crappy Wi-Fi connections. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, I can attest to crappy Wi-Fi in hotels. Um, <laughs> how, how was your weather? I saw you had some storms coming through there yesterday. Yeah, you in the summer, you always get these wall clouds that come in and the storms usually last about an hour and then they leave. Uh, so today it's actually a little bit cooler. I think it's in the low 70s. Uh, That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of been the same the last couple of weeks. It gets into the 80s and drops down into the 60s at night. Yeah, that's about perfect weather right there. So I really want to get into your travel experiences and your blogging and photography, but maybe talk a little bit about some of your more recent travels. I don't know how long you've been hanging out in Minneapolis, but what are, what are some of the more recent things you've done? Uh, I spent the, you know almost the last two months on the road. I was in Colorado for an event, uh, drove around there for a week afterwards, went to Alaska for three weeks. Um, I'm on a project to visit all the national parks in the United States and Canada. So I've yeah. visited six national parks in Alaska. And then I went to Central Asia where I was in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. That's a good bit of travel for two months. <laughs> yeah. See some good grizzlies up in Alaska? Saw a lot of them, actually. I really? saw them in Denali, I saw them in Lake Clark, and I saw them in Katmai. Any scary moments? or Not really. <laughs> uh, but I think that in some of the parks, they get so used to people that, and they're they're busy doing their thing, that so long as you don't provoke them, it's not really a problem. Yeah, yeah. 
It's good to know. <laughs> Let's kind of go back to when you were a kid. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Wisconsin, a town called Appleton. It's about 20, 30 minutes from Green Bay. Okay. What, what were you obsessed with as a kid? What were you into? Uh, really, I was a big reader. I was reading at a very young age. I would always read a lot of stuff about science and space exploration uh, and National Geographic. My dad had a subscription, and I remember in the 1970s, you know, even when I was like in first grade reading National <laughs> Geographic. Yeah. And I can still vividly remember some of the articles. And my uncle, uh, used to work at a local school and they would get rid of their National Geographic. So he would have stuff from like the 60s and, and going back even earlier. And I remember going through those and reading about the early, you know, space missions and stuff like that. Oh, that's uh, awesome. The other big things I did is I was active in Boy Scouts and I was um, really active in speech and debate. Do you remember any particular National Geographic article that kind of stuck out? July 1976 edition was the bicentennial for the US. Mm -hmm. They had one in there written by Isaac Asimov about the future and had this thing about space stations. I remember the December 1969 edition, which was the Apollo 11 edition. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you know what happened is I later started an internet company and I sold it and with, with some of the money, I amassed one of the largest collections of National Geographic magazine in the world, and I still have it. I love going through these old issues, like going back to like the 50s, and the language is very different, but the way they would describe other places, we would not use a lot of the terms today, Yeah, uh, but it, it really kind of gives an insight to how exploration and a lot of this stuff started. Yeah, I kind of, I read about your National Geographic collection on your blog, and I just imagine it like the uh, Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, that that big warehouse at the end with just like walls of National Geographics and then that volume one issue one just kind of sitting in the middle. <laughs> well, that's actually sitting in a safe in a safe. Is there anything interesting in that one? Well, no, it started as an academic journal, actually. Oh, OK. It was not a magazine like you think of it today. And in fact, they never put photos in it. I want to say until like the early 1900s. Oh, wow. There wasn't even a photo on the cover until I think they put a flag on the cover in the 1950s, but it wasn't until like the early 60s, late 50s that they actually had a photo on the cover of the magazine. When did you get the travel bug? Did it start because of kind of browsing all these National Geographics and just being interested in science and what's going on in the world? I think the desire was there, but my family never traveled much. Uh, we did a couple road trips when I was a kid. We did one to Mount Rushmore, one to Niagara Falls, very typical type things. Uh, but that was it. I never, you know, we went to Niagara Falls. We actually drove into Canada briefly and that was my only international trip ever. Yeah. So in fact, I never saw saltwater till I was 21 years old. Oh, that's, that's kind of amazing. Well, I guess, yeah, Wisconsin, you're a little bit isolated. Yeah. People either, they completely understand it because they grew up in the Midwest or they are completely baffled by how it's <laughs> possible. You know, I've been around the world and I've told people that, you know, if you live on an island or something, the idea of not seeing the ocean is yeah. just doesn't exist. It's like air. Um, when I sold my, my company back in 1998, uh, the company I sold it to was a large international corporation. And I kind of conned them into sending me on a trip to talk about <laughs> my, my company did uh, database development for websites. Mm-hmm which in the 90s was a big deal. Yeah. It's not today, but this is before MySQL, PHP, a lot of stuff like that. Uh -huh. um, 
So I, I convinced them to let me go to their offices to talk about doing application development for the web, and they did. So I went on a three-week whirlwind tour. I went to Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, Paris, Frankfurt, Brussels, and London. And that was wow. the first time I had ever been really out of the country. Uh, circumnavigated the globe, went all the way around, and it was a real eye-opening experience. So how long from that point to when you kind of decided to sell everything? I saw that you... You were going to get your master's in, was it geology for a while there? You were kind yeah, of considering I, that? I started another business uh, that was doing well for a while. It was a network of video game websites. Um, mm -hmm. Then the, this was before the dot-com bubble burst. Are you allowed to say what it was? I played a lot of video games back in the day. <laughs> oh, well, uh, the site primarily, well, the main site was called Stomped, and we dealt with Quake. And okay, yeah. Some shooters Quake. like Half-Life. Yep. Uh, we actually hosted the official Half-Life site at the time, which is big, uh, a big EverQuest site. This is before World of Warcraft and stuff. Oh, yeah. I remember um, all these games. So we were doing, like, actually, at our peak, we were doing 50 million page views a month. Holy cow. Um, yeah, and we, <laughs> and we sold 100% of our inventory to another large company. Um, and then we turned around and arbitraged that to all the people in our network. So it, it was rather decent. And then, you know, the stock market tanked, and then we got a call saying, yeah, we're canceling our agreement with you and our advertising revenue went from 100% of our inventory being sold to zero oh, wow. one day. Um, but anyways, after that, I, I also you know, helped start another company that was a business intelligence software company. And it was, it was in a time where it was very difficult to, nobody was really funding anything mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to do. And I always said, if I could go back to college, I would either um, I, one of the things I did is I was one of the top collegiate debaters in the United States, uh, uh -huh. which is why I was recruited to, to go where I did. Um, I would either be like a football player, blow off all my classes and focus on that because I came close to winning a national championship, but, but I was in the top 10, my yeah, yeah. junior and senior years, but I never won. So I'd focus on that or I would never, I wouldn't even bother doing debate and I would get a degree in like physics. And I realized, well, I can still do the physics thing. Uh -huh. I don't have eligibility to do debate, but I could, I could do the That's physics. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You can always go so back. I signed up for some classes at the University of Minnesota and uh, just took a, a whole bunch of different classes in every different science discipline and really got focused on geology because it's the most interdisciplinary science. Uh, there's aspects of everything in it, biology, chemistry. Yeah, I never thought of that. It's yeah, it, everything. It, it is. And... It also gets you outside. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I did that. And I was in my mid-30s by the time I started doing this. And it's not, you know, I was talking to the PhD students. And, and going back to what I was talking about, like National Geographic, my interest was in planetary science. And I got to, to talk to some of the people that worked on some of the planetary missions, like the Mars missions. Yeah. And, you know, they said, well, basically, you hang your entire career on one of these, and if the rocket blows up and <laughs> or crashes, you've wasted a decade of your life, basically. Ugh. And you got to go back to something else. It sounds kind of depressing. <laughs> and yeah, just seeing what the PhD students were going through and the time involved, it was like, you know, I like learning, but I didn't necessarily, I didn't think I was a guy that would necessarily enjoy doing research. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the idea of selling my house and traveling around the world for a year or two. So was this just kind of a way to, to do some more, like, feet on the ground type learning or just kind of curious about the world? Yeah, I think that I've always been, 
I always say people ask me why I travel and the, the ultimate answer is it's a way to learn. It's mm -hmm. the best way to learn because you're always encountering something new every day. Um, but I think I, you know, that this business trip I took back in 1999 really kind of developed my appetite for travel. Uh, I took a couple trips after that. I did one to Argentina, uh, which was actually a research trip I did with, uh, to, to gather samples, um, uh, for one of the geology departments. And then I just for the hell of it went to Iceland, took a trip up there and I, I kind of had the bug and I wanted to do more of it. So yeah, I just came up with this, this idea of traveling around the world. Can you take us to that moment when you finally handed the keys to your home over and you were just about to embark on your journey? What kind of, what were you feeling? And well, it took about a year and a half between coming up with the idea and the day I turned over the keys to my house. Uh, simply because of the way the housing market was and I had to do something with all my stuff. I got yeah. a lot of things. Uh, I had to finalize some stuff with the classes I was taking, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I came up with the idea in 2005 and then in 2000, March 2007, in fact, March 13th, 2007 is the day I turned over the keys to my house and that's kind of when it started. And I told everyone, yeah, I was going to travel around the world for a year. Secretly, I kind of thought I would do it for two years yeah, and ended up being nine years and it's turned into a business and a job and I'm still traveling a lot, even though I have an apartment now, yeah, uh, yeah. It takes up an enormous amount of my time. It's pretty impressive. Can you go back to that, say maybe first six to nine months that you were traveling? What, what did you learn in that time and, you know, kind of what surprised you or what things came up that you didn't expect? The biggest thing is learning not to be that you're not going home. Mm -hmm. So whenever you go on a trip, always in the back of your mind is this will end and I get to go home. Whether you're having a bad trip or a good trip, uh, it's always there. And you catch yourself sometimes falling into that. It's like, oh, I can't wait to go home. And you're like, I can't go home. I don't have a home. Yeah. And it took me a couple months to get over that and to accept the fact that where I was is where I was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was, I think, the biggest thing that I had to overcome. Was there like loneliness kind of? Was that part of it? Not really. No, uh, because you're always meeting people. Mm -hmm. And if you're staying at budget accommodations, usually like a hostel, you're meeting lots of people. And usually they're coming from where you've been or vice versa. And when I started, I also didn't start in a place where most people go. I started in the Pacific. Oh, so okay. I started island hopping through the Pacific, which is something most people never do, period. And because I was always fascinated by these little countries, so I wanted to see them. And you don't necessarily meet you, – you do meet people, but they're not the backpacking crowd necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's not like a defined route that people are traveling. Right. Do you, do you remember your first time in a hostel? Did you ever stay in any before? Because I feel like a lot of people that you know, don't travel extensively, you tell them you're still staying at a hostel, and they're like, oh, my God, you know. It's, it's kind of scary there, isn't it? Are they dirty? And, you know, I've been to a, a bunch of them, and actually now I prefer to stay at a hostel because, because of all the people you meet. Some are dirty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some, yeah, it was, it was really no big deal to me. I'm very, I'm not very fussy when it comes to things like rooms. Mm -hmm. As long as they have Wi-Fi, uh, I'm kind of happy. You know, Wi-Fi, hot water, and no bed bugs. <laughs> that, that's really all I ask. Um, and I, I do prefer it sometimes too, especially like I'm going to London later this year 
And uh, there's a hostel there I often stay at. I, I don't stay in a dorm room anymore. I'm too old for that nonsense. But mm -hmm. I'll get a private room. <clears throat> and you have, you know, a common area where people are hanging out. Uh, you get to meet people. So it's, yeah. I'll, I'll still do it on occasion, but not nearly as much as I used to. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the things that you found yourself doing that you never could have imagined doing before you started traveling like this? In terms of uh, different travel, hiking, maybe I saw that you bungee jumped off a bridge. I don't know if any of this stuff kind of came out of oh, travel. Yeah, or... I mean, I've, I've, I've got to do a lot of things. Um, I landed on an aircraft carrier last year. That's pretty cool. That's, that's, something <laughs> a lot. that's something I found out even most people who work on an aircraft carrier don't get to do. Because yeah. <laughs> there's 6,000 people on an aircraft carrier, and only a handful are actually going to take off and land. Yeah, most of them walk on when they're parked yeah. somewhere. <laughs> there's, just, there's just no way to get that many people on and off. Um, yeah, I've been dog sledding up in the Yukon. Uh, bungee jumping, I've done it twice. Uh -huh. um, not something I'm necessarily gonna go out of my way to do again yeah yeah <laughs> maybe if the opportunity were to arise and it was free or something i'd do it but um I'd driven in a formula one race car i should say i rode in a formula one race car i didn't drive it yeah yeah um scuba diving i've been done hundreds of dives all over the world in some amazing places um man i'd have to to think of the full list of all the different stuff I've been able to do. Uh, that's okay. You've got a lot of it listed on your blog, but did, did the scuba diving, did you get into that when you started traveling or have you scuba dived before? No, I, I learned to scuba dive. Uh, one of the first things I did, so I started my trip basically in Minneapolis, which is where I lived, and uh, took a train, I drove to Dallas, where I met one of my friends, hung out mm -hmm. with him, took a train to LA, uh, flew to Hawaii, and I learned to scuba dive in Maui. That's the first place I ever did it. That sounds like a nice place to learn. Yeah. Then I went, I was in the Cook Islands. I did my advanced certification there and did dives in Micronesia, Palau, several, all over Australia, um, Egypt. Man, I'd have to make a list. This would be a long one. <laughs> uh, all over the Caribbean, the Caymans, Saba. Um, Any that stand out the most? You know, the the dive you can do in Alexandria, Egypt. So if you're familiar with the Lighthouse of Alexandria, it was one of the original seven wonders of the world. Yeah. It collapsed in an earthquake, I think, somewhere in the 16th century. A bunch of it is still there. It's just underwater. Oh, that's It's just cool. sitting in the same spot. So you can go and see the actual rocks, and there are some statues, some Sphinx statues and other things from the lighthouse that have been sitting there for 500 years undisturbed. And it's a very different kind of dive. It's not about, you know, sea life or coral. Yeah, it's just an historical dive. thing. Yeah. 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 Mm. I never would have thought of that one. That's that's pretty cool. Are there any different kinds of adventures or travel that you seek out now compared to when you started? I mean, have things kind of changed? You said you're slowing down a little bit in terms of the amount, maybe, but Yeah, I mean I've I've done a lot. Uh so I'm always looking for new places to visit. So the trip I took uh, just this last month to Central Asia uh, was something I'd wanted to do. I have kind of, I have a lot of things, I wouldn't say planned, but kind of like on my to-do list, I want to do a trip of, uh, I want to go from Helsinki down to uh, Odessa, mm -hmm. my land, going through the Baltic countries, uh, stop in St. Petersburg, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, uh, all the way down there. I'd like to do one in the Caucasus. Um, 
I'd like to do the Trans-Mongolian Railway at some point. Oh, uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, so there's lots of... And then there's just a lot of places that are rather obvious places that I've never been to. I've never been to Jamaica. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, there are two places in the Caribbean I haven't been. Cuba and Jamaica. Oh, yeah, I really want to go to Cuba. Cuba Those sounds... are the two pop most popular destinations. Yeah. I've been to Dominica, Grenada, all those places. Do you create little travel challenges for yourself now just to kind of keep things interesting? Like you're doing the national parks is kind of something that you're ticking off. And... Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, having a set list of things and, uh, you know, I visit UNESCO World Heritage Sites. That's one of the big things I do. I've been to 312 of them at this point. Um, that's something that's kind of never ending because they're making more of them all the time. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, the, the National Parks Project is very definite. So there's 59 national parks in the U.S. and there's 44 or 45 in Canada. Mm -hmm. That's it. And they don't, they don't make new ones that often. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm more than halfway done with that. I should finish the U.S. parks sometime next year. Uh, but then I'm thinking, okay, well, there are 411, I think, sites within the national park system that are not necessarily national parks, so national monuments, battlefields, memorials, okay, yeah. stuff like that. Uh -huh. And I've been to maybe 150 of those already. And I was thinking of basically starting with the parks that I've already been to and then visiting all the rest of those, the monuments and whatnot, uh, and revisiting all the stuff that I've visited in the past. Yeah, there's like an endless list of things you can see, basically. <laughs> right, and you know, the thing is that having a list like that, like the UNESCO sites, there are a lot of obvious places like the pyramids, the Taj mm -hmm. Mahal, stuff like that. But more often than not, there are places that people would never visit or they're, they just don't know about it. Yeah. So like there's a steel mill I visited in Germany and you would nor not normally think to visit a steel mill on your vacation. But this was absolutely fascinating. This is a hundred year old steel mill. And if you've ever seen like the ending scenes in Robocop or something like that, they could have filmed it there because you had all these ironworks and pipes and chains and all this stuff around. And it was just fascinating to see how it all worked. Yeah. Uh, same with a coal mine I visited in Essen, Germany. Um, you know, coal and, and ironworks in Wales, um, things which are really kind of fascinating, but you otherwise wouldn't know about. And that's one of the nice things about having something like that. Do you think that's part of the, I don't know, the, the thing that kind of drives you to is just learning about all of these different sites and kind of the history and, and how different geological formations were created and those types of things? Oh, absolutely. Because you're not just, you don't just go to a place, learn about the place, go to the next place, learn about that place. You're also seeing connections between the places you visit and what things have in common. So one of the things you'll notice when traveling is that um, as a general rule, it's not a perfect rule, um, places that were former British colonies mm -hmm. have tended to do better after they became independent than former French colonies or former Spanish colonies. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> and so look at Southeast Asia. Uh, Malaysia and Singapore were British. Mm -hmm. And they're probably doing the best of the countries in that region. Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos were French. They had massive wars. If you look what happened in Cambodia, they had just horrific things happen. Yeah. Um, same is true in parts of Africa that were French versus British. Uh, so you, that's just an example of things you can see and... Um, you notice if you're paying attention, visiting different places. 
Yeah, that's that really adds to your historical view of the world and how things kind of came about and political landscapes of today too. You've probably been asked this type of question quite a bit, but um, have you ever found yourself in danger or kind of feeling like you're in danger, or do you just have like this jujitsu kind of posture that keeps everyone at bay? <laughs> um, I've never really had a problem. Yeah, I've never been robbed. Uh, never had anything taken out of a hotel room. Uh, you know, hopefully that'll continue, but I, I just haven't had any problems like that. I know people who have, I think being a man certainly helps. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even, even on my website, the, the women I know who have travel websites, they get a lot more trolls and, and people harassing them. And I get pretty much nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I was photographing a massive political protest in Thailand once. This is in 2010. Mm -hmm. And I was right between a couple thousand protesters and several hundred cops in riot gear, like shields, helmets, batons. <laughs> and I was between them. And I was basically a white guy with a big camera. And so I was not part of the struggle. You know, yeah. I was on either side. So I was, but I had a, I had a backup plan. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? If, uh, you know, stuff something happens yeah. and nothing did, um, but it was, it was kind of exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, but nothing, nothing bad has ever really happened for the most part. If you use a little bit of common sense, you know, one of my rules is never, ever, ever go to a nightclub Yeah, while you're traveling. Nothing good happens in a nightclub. Even if someone doesn't spike your drink, doesn't pickpocket you, doesn't set you up for a scam and there's not a massive fire <laughs> or a bombing that happens at the nightclub, you're just going to end up paying a ton of money. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and, and especially, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a woman, the concern is someone putting something in your drink. Yeah. If you're a guy, I've heard of scams where women hit on you, they leave, and then they take you to an apartment where there's two big guys who basically shake you down for money. Yeah, yeah. That's... Or they escort you to an ATM machine where you have to make a withdrawal. So it's... Yeah, just never go to a nightclub. Do you feel like uh, extremely touristy areas are a little more likely to have predators kind of waiting for you to set something down or, you know? Uh, yes and no. It kind of depends. Uh, in a lot of places, you'll also see tourist police and a higher police presence because mm -hmm. they know that's happening. So it really kind of depends. Uh, yeah, there are certain places, especially maybe like in Europe or Rome, where they're going to be on the pickpockets might be on the lookout for people. But otherwise, not necessarily something you may need to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's dig into your photography and blogging a little bit. You won Travel Photographer of the Year a few times from a couple of different organizations, um, which is pretty impressive. How did you? How did the original decision to come to uh, start taking pictures and blogging come about? I mean, I guess it's kind of natural for everyone to want to capture some photos of where they're going. But how did it start for you? Well, starting a website was just a natural thing. I had a, a personal blog before they were called blogs. Uh -huh. uh, it was just a website. So it was something that when I started this was very natural to do. Even when I did my first uh, trip around the world for business, I started a small website so everybody in the office could uh, follow along with what I was doing. Yeah, because there wasn't even social media back then, right? No Facebook no. or any of that stuff. So, yeah, starting a, a website was just kind of a natural thing for me to do. And as I started traveling, um, I'd say for the first nine months, very few people were reading it. 
the places I was visiting were kind of obscure. Mm -hmm. I was in like the Solomon Islands and uh, Vanuatu and, and New Caledonia and places like that. And it was, I was in Hong Kong and I kind of had this come to Jesus moment. Like I said, I had, I had run some very big websites previously. Yeah. And what I was doing, I knew was not a big website. I could tell <laughs> you the names of most of the people reading the website. It was mm -hmm. that the audience was that small. And so I basically came to the conclusion that either I should stop doing the website or I need to consider doing this seriously, whatever that meant. Yeah. And there was nobody really doing this as a business at the time. So, and I, I have no background in publishing, no background in journalism, no background in photography, none of that. So I went to a newsstand in Hong Kong. I bought every travel magazine and I went through it and I opened up a spreadsheet and I created, I did an analysis of how many photos are in each issue, how many mm -hmm. articles, how many countries are mentioned editorially in each issue, each issue, maybe a hotel or a restaurant in a given country or, or something else. And, you know, I came to some pretty interesting conclusions. One, the average number of countries mentioned editorially in the magazines I looked at was 35. Most people never visit 35 countries in their life, let alone yeah. a month. Yeah. So people were not necessarily reading these magazines for travel planning. That it makes was, sense. It was more it was, of kind of just dreaming, daydreaming type thing. It's porn. Mm -hmm. It's travel, <laughs> right? Dreaming of places they wanted to go. And the... I really felt that a lot of people don't read the magazines. They just flip through it. Yeah, you may know people that have like architectural digests sitting on the coffee table of their yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I assure you they're not architects. It's there to impress people. They flip through it. They look at the nice stuff and that's it. They don't necessarily read the articles. Yeah, or you get excited and you're like, I'm going to start reading this magazine. And then after one or two issues, they just start piling up. <laughs> Uh, so I, I recognized the importance of photography. I had been taking photos. Uh, my first photos were really, really bad. I mm -hmm. had no idea what I was doing. I had the camera on automatic. I, you know, was just pointing it at stuff, pressing the button. And I bought a rather expensive camera with the assumption that, oh, well, if I have an expensive camera, then that must, that'll, that'll take good pictures. Yeah. And that was not the case. I took bad photos. Do you and still get tons of questions about your gear as if that's going to help the new people? Not a, not a lot. Occasionally yeah. I do. I have a page on my website now that explains it. But I think, you know, that's the thing. It's it's not, you know, people say, well, if, if the camera doesn't matter, then why do all pro photographers have really nice cameras? And it does matter. But if you don't know how to use it to do the things that it can do, then yeah. it truly doesn't matter. If you're yeah, just yeah. shooting an automatic, then there's, there's no point in having that camera. Just mm -hmm. get a cheaper camera. Um, but yeah, I took a lot of bad photos and I recognized that the photos were bad. And so I began an iterative process of trying to get better, to make my photos not suck. And that's, I'm still doing that. Do you, do you remember some of the steps that you take or things that you try to do that you think most people don't do in terms of improving? Well, one of the first things I did is that the, the, the first camera I bought was a Nikon D200 mm -hmm. and it had all these knobs and dials and buttons. So the first thing was, what do they do? <laughs> Which is a reasonable question. Why yeah. are they here? What, what is the purpose of these buttons? And that quickly got me into the issue to knowing what uh, 
exposure was, what ISO was, the aperture settings and things like that. Uh, shooting in RAW as opposed to JPEG. Okay, okay. So I started to do those things. Um, then the next thing was figuring out how to edit photos, which I wasn't doing. Yeah. And once you start shooting in RAW, you pretty much have to edit your photos. So that began a process. So I installed Photoshop and learned that and eventually did Lightroom because it was a lot easier. And I went down that path. And then, you know, once you figure out the basics of how the camera works and editing, then it's just a lot of repetition, doing it yeah. over and over. And I look back on some of the photos I took years ago, and I, I won't even <laughs> find them on my website, but I won't display most of them anymore because yeah. I'm so embarrassed and I would not mind going back and, and retracing all the steps I took when I started traveling just so I could reshoot everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think I came across your blog probably around 2008 or nine. So it was still fairly new. And I remember you writing about, you know, learning and trying to improve as a photographer. And I, I think back then you were starting to get some pretty good pictures, but compared to now, I mean, the the stuff you put up there is, you know, right up there with stuff that's in National Geographic. So definitely can see the improvements <laughs> that you've made over the years. Well, you know, one of the things I'm constantly worried about now is, am I doing the same thing over and over? Mm -hmm. Is there a particular look that I'm developing? And is that necessarily what I want to be doing? And, you know, you look at other photographers' work, and, and this is the other thing. You see all your worst stuff, but you only see other people's best stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that can really, you know, make you insecure about things. Uh -huh. but Especially on Instagram, it, there's just tons of feeds of amazing photos. Right. And but, you know, when you're pumping out, you're, you're showing people photos every single day. The number of photos that you're displaying to the public is much greater than what, say, a print photographer is going to be doing. Mm -hmm. you, know, you may shoot 60,000 photos on an assignment for National Geographic, of which 10 or 12 maybe might make the magazine, maybe less than that. Yeah. So it's really just the best of the best. Whereas if I'm putting up a photo every day on my website, which I did for almost nine years, I just stopped doing it a couple of months ago. <laughs> um, you're putting up 365 photos a day just on that, plus what you're doing on social media and other things, plus photo essays. And you're looking at over a thousand photos you're presenting to the public every year. And one that forces you to get better and two, it, it, you're really, you know, it, it's not necessarily going to be the A plus photos. Maybe you're doing A and B plus photos as well. <clears throat> that makes sense. What, what types of things make you want to take a photo now? I mean, what kind of inspires you or, or what grabs your attention when you're out there? Well, it's hard to say. Um, you can see things that, that just happen in an instant. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. More often than not, you don't. Mm -hmm. I, um, one of the best photos I never took <laughs> was in Haiti and we were in a van coming back from this archeological site. And, uh, in Haiti, uh, the schoolgirls tend to have very large ribbons in their hair. Yeah. And we drove past this man on a motorbike who had four, I assume his daughters, four young girls on his motorcycle, all with these massive ribbons in their hair with dad, you know, two behind him, two in front of him. Oh, neat. And it was like one of the best. And, and we just, we passed him in a couple seconds yeah. and I just wish I could have stopped. <laughs> um, I was in Ethiopia earlier this year and we were visiting Lalabella, which is these, a city that has these carved out churches, carved out of rock. And we were inside and uh, this one priest 
got a cell phone call. And so he walks out and he's in his full traditional priestly garments. He has his prayer book and he has a cell phone in one hand. So I managed to turn around as he was exiting the church and got a picture of it. And it's uh, probably my favorite uh, photo of this year so far. So it's kind of the, the rules just be ready all the time. You never know when it's going to happen. If you really want yeah. to capture good photos. You know, if you're on assignment or something, there are some people that's like, okay, I'm going to this place and my goal is to get the shot. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times you just have to be opportunistic. If you're not on assignment, you're just trying to be observant and pay attention. And it might be, oh man, the sun is setting. That's beautiful. Oh man, it's illuminating this building. That's beautiful. Oh, look over there. There's a bear. And <laughs> there's all this different stuff going on around you. Yeah, because for like the, uh, I think I read your article about the Taj Mahal picture that you took and there was a little bit of pre-planning because you wanted to get a shot without any people in it, right? Yeah, so basically I <laughs> we got in line first. The guide I was with uh, knew everybody there, so he, he knew what time to show up. So we showed up at uh, 5.45 in the morning and the doors open at 7. And we were probably beat the number two person in line by 15 minutes. <laughs> So he took care of all the tickets and everything. So everything was set to go. They opened the door. We did a very brisk walk uh, to the the gate that gives you into the compound where the Taj is. And there, you know, the other people behind me were also kind of walking very fast. And we had about a few minutes, maybe two minutes, where we could photograph the Taj Mahal with no people there. <clears throat> did you have a tripod then? Or were you just kind of trying to nope. grab whatever you can? Did it by hand. <laughs> um it, like I said, I, I just didn't have the time to set up. Yeah. Spot. And it really wasn't necessary. Yeah. Uh, it, the light was good enough that I could do it handheld. Let's, let's dig into your blogging a little bit. Was there, was there a turning point when you actually realized that this could become something um, that could possibly support you or maybe just provide more connection on a larger scale than originally planned? Uh, I didn't make any money for like the first four years I was doing it. Yeah. And a lot of that was intentional. Because I think a lot of people, they will get offers for someone to sell a link or do a sponsored post and they'll make 20 bucks. And with a business background, I knew if, if you start doing stuff for 20 bucks, you're going to be a $20 blogger. Yeah. That's pretty much what you are. So I would rather earn $0 and wait to do something significant with a reputable company. And that's the other thing. Who you work with is a reflection of yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've always worked with reputable brands. Uh, G Adventures. I've worked with them for uh, almost six years now. You know, they're the biggest adventure travel company in the world. Yeah. With Allianz Insurance, they're the biggest, you know, insurance company in the world. Um, very big, reputable names are a reflection of you as opposed to just working, you know, I, every week I get emails, you know, oh, we're a startup <laughs> company. We'd really like you to promote our product. Yeah, you're like, okay. Sure. Who are you, you would like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, and the, the philosophy, as soon as I decided to do this was, um, get a, build an audience. If you have an audience, the money will come to you. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people, they're so worried about the minutia of, Oh, should I, how do I post this? What time do I post this on Instagram? And I look at your Instagram feed and it sucks. It's just horrible <laughs> photos. It's like, there's nothing you can do in terms of posting times that is going to improve your feed because your feed is garbage. Yeah. You, you just need to keep putting out as much as you can to get better basically. Right. But basically, yeah, it's like focus on building an audience first. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the money right away. And once you have that audience, then 
your options are pretty much limitless. You could sell products, you could sell trips, you could do seminars, whatever. So was there a point when you had a, a certain amount of people coming to your site when you decided to start approaching companies or did they come to you realizing that you uh, were, had, they, had attention? Yeah, I very seldom approach companies even to this day. Um, I've done it on occasion, uh, but for the most part. And I think, you know, at the time my focus wasn't, and I said, this is still true. Uh, the focus is not on traffic to the website. Back in the day, it was RSS subscribers. Yeah. And today it's, it's email subscribers. Traffic is nothing more. Traffic is not your audience. Traffic is a way to build an audience. So someone visits your website, the vast majority of those people, especially if they come via Google or something, will probably never return. Mm -hmm. And think of your own browsing habits, right? Someone puts a link on Facebook, you visit and whatever, or you do a search, same thing. What you want to do is to make it compelling and interesting enough so someone says, hey, this is interesting. I want to hear more from this person in the future. Yeah. And the people who say that, that's your audience. And it's the, getting traffic to convert to an audience is very difficult to do. And so, again, so many people are focused on just getting their Google Analytics numbers up. <laughs> and then here's a good example. There was a point where I was getting like a half a million visits a month to my website from StumbleUpon. Mm -hmm. They had... Uh, put out some tool that integrated with Twitter and I had a lot of Twitter followers. So I hit the jackpot and eventually they changed their algorithm and all that traffic went away. Disappeared. And I realized I had absolutely nothing to show for it because those people came and left, which is the nature of stumble upon. Yeah. I converted none of it and I had nothing to show for it. It's like gorging on cotton candy. It's all empty calories. And that really matters. Was this before you had an email list? No, yeah, it was before. I was all I had was my RSS subscribers, really. Okay. Uh, so I wasn't focusing on uh, an email list at the time, but yeah, I didn't. There were no RSS subscribers. There were no boost in Twitter followers. There wasn't yeah. anything. So there really was no benefit to all that traffic. And so yeah, there's. You have to think about it's not just quantity, it's quality as well. And the more I do this, the longer I do this, and I meet my readers in person, I realize that, you know, even the, the email numbers and everything else, if you can develop real relations with people and you can develop their trust, mm -hmm. um, that's really, I think, the way to do it. So in terms of advice for someone that's starting out, you just put out as much quality content as you can and don't focus on all of the social media and Google Analytics numbers? Uh, don't focus on Google Analytics so much, but don't put out a lot of content. Put out some really, like, an amazing, one amazing thing that is going to get shared and talked about. And uh, focus on getting an audience of 100 people who will follow you like a cult leader. Yeah. Because if they, if you can find a, a very small number of people that such that you know their names, right? You know who they are, uh, who are willing to listen to you and engage with you and at a very high level, they'll spread the word, right? If you can do it with a few people, you can scale that up. Mm -hmm. But if you can't do that with a couple people, what makes you think you're going to get an audience of hundreds of thousands? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you can't. Um, so that, yeah, I would, I would say start and, and get a fanatical following of a small number of people and 
if, if you can do that, then you can grow. If you can't do that, you're not going to grow. How do you think your, your life and your travel would be different if you didn't have the blog, if you didn't do that? Uh, it would be very different. Uh, I probably would have just traveled and then the end. Yeah. You know, I, I would have gone on a nice trip. I would have taken some of my photos and hung them on the wall. And I have no idea what I'd be doing right now. <laughs> do you think it's allowed you to, to make more connections and friends and long-term connections by building that community? Uh, it allowed me to meet people and make friends in different places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would maybe still have friends if I never traveled, but they would just all live around me. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the people I meet, you know, you, the, one of the downsides is you don't necessarily get to, to meet them frequently because they live in a different place and yeah, you're spread all you over the world by, you see them maybe a couple, you know, once every couple of years. Um, so thankfully with the internet now you can, uh, meet people all over, uh, stay in touch with them on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, I have one guy who, you know, still follows me on Twitter. And I met him back in 2008 in Kuwait. Uh, and he'll still occasionally chime in and, and respond to one of my articles or something. And if I was ever in Kuwait again, I would absolutely uh, stop by and say hi with him. Yeah. Have something to eat. That's pretty cool. Why did you get into podcasting? I mean, you're already blogging and taking photos and it sounds like you've created a lot of work for yourself as you're traveling. <laughs> um, my background, like I mentioned, was in speech and debate. Mm-hmm. So I'm more comfortable talking than I am writing. And quite frankly, it's just, in some respects, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Right? This podcast is going to take about an hour of my time. Yep. Right? Because you can schedule it. We're going to start talking. We're going to stop, you know, we'll start and stop talking and then that's it. Yeah. Whatever comes out, comes out. And uh, Writing an article could take a long time. You got to edit it and go, you go back and maybe do some research and stuff and uh, it's just a lot more time consuming. So I've always enjoyed podcasting. Uh, I actually started a podcast, the first one in 2009, uh, this week in travel, which we're mm -hmm. still doing. Um, in fact, as soon as I'm done talking to you, uh, I, I, I record that to? podcast. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, and, uh, the one I'm doing with, uh, CBS now, I kind of took a hiatus this summer, but I'll, I'll get back to it. And, uh, I actually have some other ones. I, I might be working on the future as well. I, I might have to, to ditch some of the other podcasts to, to redo it, but not necessarily travel podcasts. You know, one of the big things is that I don't, a lot of travel content, whether it's articles or podcasting or whatever, talks about the how of travel, mm -hmm. hotels, flights, frequent flyer programs, stuff like that. Yeah. And, I don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah. People can just Google it and see what's going on. And yeah, I, yeah. you know, there are people that really get into that and that that's fine. Uh, but it's just not of interest to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, earning a hundred thousand frequent flyer miles to go to Hong Kong just to fly in the airplane. I hate flying in airplanes. It's a horrible experience. It, <laughs> it's miserable. And if I could teleport like I wouldn't Star Trek, I would do that. It just, that's just one yeah. of the things you got to do to visit other places. But being in Hong Kong and exploring it is what I'm really interested in, not the act of getting there or finding a hotel or mm -hmm. talking about this fancy hotel I'm staying at. I can really care less. So I want to talk about what makes, you know, the, the story behind a lot of these things that maybe we've heard of or maybe we've never heard of. Because that's one of the interesting things as well is there when you ask people where they would like to visit, 
they're obviously limited to the places they've or they know about, which is why so many people want to go to Paris yeah. or they want to go to London because they've heard of Paris, right? But when you say, okay, well, you know, not as many people necessarily want to go to Berlin because there's nothing in their mind that, you know, Paris has the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. the Louvre, uh, Notre Dame, uh, Berlin, maybe people know about the Brandenburg Gate. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a World War II reference or something. That's yeah. <laughs> But it's a great place. There's lots of cool stuff in Germany, but a lot of people want to go to Italy because they know about Rome and they want to see the Colosseum and they want to see these things that they know about. But if we just knew about more stuff, because there's some amazing stuff out there that people are just completely unaware of. So is there an example of maybe maybe a place or a story that goes along with a place that you can think of? Um, I'm sure you've heard of a place called Easter Island. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Stoneheads. Everyone is familiar with it. Uh it's a very difficult place to get to, very remote, one of the most remote islands in the world. Um, you've probably heard of Machu Picchu. Yep. Right. Uh, have you heard of Nan Modal? No, I have not. No, you haven't, because it's in Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia on the island of Panape. And I would say it's easily on a par with those two places I just mentioned. It is a series of buildings built on little islands with canals between them, kind of like Venice. Uh, the buildings are all made out of basalt logs, kind of like log cabins made of stone. Mm -hmm. The stone they know through chemical testing did not come from that Island. It came from a different Island. They're not sure how they got them there because they're really, really heavy and nobody knows about it because nobody goes to Micronesia. Yeah. And to get to Micronesia, you got to go through Hawaii or Guam. And most people just stop at one of those two places because it's a tourist destination. And when I went, I had the whole place to myself, not an exaggeration in the slightest. I was the only person there. I had the whole place to myself to wander around and explore. And there's tons of places like that. Um, you know, when I when people want to go on a vacation in the South Pacific, they may say, I want to go to Tahiti or I want to go to Bora Bora mm-hmm. because that's what they know. And I've had a lot of people where it's like, well, you know, if you go to the Cook Islands, it's way cheaper. They speak English. The beaches are nicer. And... You know, it, it's probably a superior place to visit. But no, they, they had in their head, they, they got to go to Tahiti. Yeah. And really, really, they don't even know the difference. It's just kind of whatever the travel agency companies of the hype they've created over the years, maybe. Uh, you know, when Eat, Pray, Love came out, there was mm-hmm. a boom in tourism to India, uh, Italy, and Indonesia. <laughs> and when most people go to Indonesia, they go to one place, Bali. Mm-hmm. And nothing, nothing against Bali. Bali's a great place. There are some parts in... Kuta Beach, which are really over-touristed and kind of a dump. Um, but there's some great places. If you just go back into Java a little bit, near Probolingo, there's Mount Bromo, which is an active volcano. Uh, Yogyakarta, which has Pramanan and Brodabadur, which are two of the, the uh, greatest Hindu and Buddhist temples in the world. A lot of people don't know about this stuff. And But, you know, Bali is where they go because that, ha- that has the resorts. And even in the Caribbean, you know, for going to the U.S., most people are only going to go to a few places. They'll go to Jamaica, uh, maybe a couple other islands. Mm-hmm. And I did an island hopping trip in the Caribbean a couple years ago, and I found out why people go to those islands. It's because there's only a few islands which can actually land a large jet. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. So there's only a few islands which have a long enough runway where you can do that. So St. Martin does, St. Lucia does, Jamaica does. But the coolest island in the Caribbean that I found was Dominica. 
In Dominica, it's a very mountainous place, and they can't land a large jet there because they can't build a big enough runway. So you have to just go to another island and then go to Dominica in a smaller plane, a uh, really short flight. So you got to go to Martinique, Guadeloupe, whatever. Um, but people don't bother to do that, and they end up missing this great stuff because they just go to where the easiest place is where they built up all the resorts. So in your in your podcast and maybe future podcasts, you really want to try to dig into some of these more obscure places and reveal them to, <laughs> to others. Well, I can I can tell you what episode one of the new podcast would be. Uh, it's going to be about the Mona Lisa. Um, everyone knows about the Mona Lisa. It's the most famous painting in the world. Do you know why it's the most famous painting in the world? I'm not sure. No. Uh, it was stolen. In the early 20th century, it was stolen from the Louvre and it became a massive cause celeb in media around the world. Think like the O.J. Simpson trial yeah, yeah. Uh, of that time. And because of that, the painting became very famous and well-known, and it just kind of always stuck in popular culture ever since then. To this day, when people visit the Louvre, 25% of the visitors to the Louvre go to see the Mona Lisa and leave. Ah, oh, wow. That's all they do. <laughs> They're surrounded by the greatest art in the world. They go to see the one thing they know that they can tell their friends they saw and they frickin' leave. And from what I understand, it's not too easy to see it either, is it? It's kind of like behind a no, bunch of glass and not it that is. big. It is. It's not that big. And, you know, here's a here's a photo tip to anyone going to the Louvre. Don't take a picture of the Mona Lisa. Take a picture of people taking pictures of Mona <laughs> Lisa. And try to do it. So people, you're going to see all these people with their arms held up with smartphones. Uh -huh. And they'll have a picture of the Mona Lisa on their smartphone because that's what their camera's doing. So get a picture of someone holding up a tablet or a smartphone, covering up the Mona Lisa, but with the Mona Lisa on it. <laughs> That's a cool That'll idea. make a great photo. Yeah. Maybe you've already kind of answered this question, but what are the questions that you get the most that are kind of empty and compared to what you wish people would ask you, either on the blog or when you meet them traveling? Uh, the one question you always get is, what's your favorite place? Mm -hmm. And that is a question that can't be answered because your experience in a place is dependent upon so many things, including the weather, the people you happen to meet, um, just all sorts of things. Uh, I was in the Asawa Islands in Fiji twice. First time I had a, a great experience, met some fantastic people, really enjoyed it. Second time I, I just didn't meet the same type of people. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a very different experience. And uh, some of the places I went to the first time closed down. and. It just wasn't as fun the second time. I'd go back a third time because I, maybe it'll be like my first trip. Maybe it'll be like my second. But that's the way it is for a lot of things. You know, um, people have a bad experience and then they'll say, oh, that country sucks because they had a bad meal in a country. Yeah. As if, you know, that one restaurant is indicative of the entire nation and all its people. <laughs> And just comparing experiences is kind of tough, too, because, you know, they, they just vary so much. I mean, one might be climbing a mountain. The other one might be looking at monuments in a city. And it's just you can't really compare those types of things. So I could see how that's kind of a difficult one to answer. <laughs> is there something that you would rather people or ask you? Sorry. You know, occasionally someone will say, like, you know, what's the your, the best food you've had or something more specific like that, uh, which I think is a bit more interesting. Um, you know, or what's the best museum you've been to? Some sort of question like that, which is um, a bit more specific and I think a bit easier to answer. Yeah, dig into the something open-ended, like what's your favorite place? Mm -hmm. 
And I think people are always looking for superlatives. Oh, what's the best place? Okay, I will go then to the best place. Yeah. What's the best hotel? I don't know what the best hotel is. <laughs> you know how many hotels are in New York? <laughs> like hundreds of hotels. So if someone says, what's the best hotel? I don't know what the best hotel in New York is. Go to TripAdvisor. Yeah, but yeah. No one's I, been I to everyone. I stay in a couple. And even then, what I like in a hotel may not be what you like in a hotel. So, and it's a hotel. It doesn't matter. It's a bed. You sleep. The rest of your day, you're not in a hotel. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't be in there the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you're missing out. With all the tech stuff and the blogging and the social media and answering emails and stuff, is it? Has it been tough for you to disconnect while you're out there because you're trying to kind of run this blog and take photos and you, you get time to just turn it all off? Yeah, whether or not you choose to do it, it happens to you. Uh, like when I was in Alaska, I, I was above the Arctic Circle and there just was no internet. And that's, that's just what it is. Um, lots of you know the places in Alaska, the, the interesting places you want to visit are going to be offline. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in Central Asia, uh, we had Wi-Fi in a lot of places, but we spent some time like sleeping in a yurt. Uh, in between, while you're driving, you're not necessarily going to have uh, a roaming signal. Although, oddly enough, in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, T-Mobile roaming worked. Oh, really? Their free package, yeah. But in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, it didn't. Um, so, yeah, there there are places like that, and. It doesn't. I I've, I don't usually feel a need to to get offline. It's simple to do. Just just turn off your computer or yeah. shut your browser yeah. uh, if you need to get something done. You're not addicted like some folks out there. <laughs> I should probably stay off like Facebook less. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't spend as much time on it. But you know the solution is quite easy. What was your biggest obstacle or fear that you had to overcome? Kind of the leap into this long-term travel that you've been doing the last nine years, if there was any. There really wasn't um, because I wasn't married. I had no kids. Uh, I had a fair amount of money saved up. I didn't have to worry about um, a lot of the things that other people may have to worry about. So for me, at least, it was relatively easy. So it was, it was probably more excitement than fear leading up to it. You know, I, I've had a lot of people say, oh, you're so courageous or you're so brave yeah. uh, for what you did. And I, I no point did I ever think of what I was doing as something that was courageous. <laughs> I mean, I didn't. Going on vacation, is, it was just a big vacation, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I never thought of it as, as requiring any sort of courage. Uh, but a lot of people say that. And there's a lot of people, quite frankly, which the idea of going to dinner or a movie by themselves is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And that was never a big deal for me. If I wanted to go to a movie, I would go to a movie. If I wanted to eat, I would go eat. I didn't wait for someone else to do it. Uh, and there's a lot of people that I don't think they could ever travel by themselves like this because they just couldn't possibly do it. Too much anxiety around it. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think the world could use more travelers? I mean, do you think it would cure some of our society's tics and ailments? Just like more people getting out there and kind of seeing the world and Absolutely. seeing how other cultures exist. Uh, and I don't think you necessarily have to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to, to do what I do. Uh, but just being able to see other things and that there are people that just go about their lives quite happily, thank you very much, and just do it with a different set of assumptions that they work under uh, is pretty eye-opening. And I think that, you know, I, I think, you know, with this recent election, there's been a massive shift in politics 
in this country and in places like Europe, that mm -hmm. the divisions between right and left are not the same as they used to be. And what you're seeing is uh, a split between a cosmopolitan worldview and a parochial worldview. Yeah. And it's in, it's not necessarily political, you know, different policies or things like that, that people with a more cosmopolitan worldview are not going to be as worried about things like immigration. They're going to be more open to trade. Mm -hmm. um, and people with a more parochial worldview who, who don't know the rest of the world are going to have a very different worldview from those people. Yeah, just the, the unknown. Right. So the act of, of traveling, I think, really changes that. Well, we're getting kind of close towards the end here, so I'll, I'll try to kind of wrap it up. But um, just maybe a few uh, short questions. Um, do you do you have a favorite travel story from maybe maybe recent times? Anything that kind of sticks in your mind? Uh, most recently, a uh, trip I took to Ethiopia in March. We went to a place called the Erda Ale Volcano, and it was a press trip that was uh, run by the Ethiopian government. And they're pretty new to this stuff. They just developed, just started a tourism board recently. Mm -hmm. And our schedule said we will go to the Erta Ale Volcano. That's all it said. <laughs> and so I assumed that this involved okay, we would drive a car, park walk up a path, uh -huh. see the volcano. No, no, no. That's not what it was at all. It was a nine-mile hike each way. The hike began after sunset. Uh, it hit 115 degrees uh, during the day. So wow. we're walking uphill in the dark, very hot, with a hot wind blowing at us. It's a perfect recipe for dehydration, uh -huh. uh, which is exactly what happened. Ugh. And... So we ended up kind of causing a strike, and the, the people that were guiding us were horrible. They did not speak English. They didn't have any training. They had no first aid kit. Wow. They had no radio. And I should say, we were hours away from anything. We were oh in the Anakil Depression, one of the lowest, hottest parts of the earth. Very few people live there. There's nothing around. And um, They didn't think to bring extra water or anything like that? No, and they, they gave us beer before <laughs> we started. So yeah, there terrible. was eventually a, a supply camel that was following us. So we just eventually kind of went on strike. We waited, got some more water. We get up to the volcano, which is basically a big pit of lava. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen anything like this, it's <laughs> just a pit of lava. It's like hell, right? <laughs> and what, I, what they also did not tell us and is that there are ammonia clouds that are being vented off of this. So we're walking towards it, you know, blah, 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 no problem. And then all of a sudden we start coughing because we're in this cloud of ammonia and oh, you do wow. not want to be breathing ammonia, right? This can, this is, this was a weapon in world war one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That we walked into a gas cloud and we noticed that the, there was another group, I think they were from Germany. Uh, they all had gas masks on. Not oh, only were huh. we not told, you know, not given gas masks, we were not even told this was going to happen. So we eventually kind of went around via the way the wind was blowing. So we didn't have to suffer this, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was just a horrible experience. And then after sleeping for two hours, they wake us up and it's time to start walking back because we got to get back to where our vehicles were before the sun got up. Oh, so you, you slept up there for a couple hours once you got to the top. So yeah, basically we ended up walking 18 miles <laughs> between sunset and sunrise. <laughs> Wow, with, that's intense. You know, massively hot temperatures and clouds of ammonia. I'm sure it's not any cooler when you're staring down into a pit of lava either. It's well, th the pit of lava was kind of cool. Yeah. We'll say that. Well, but... well, looked cool, but didn't feel cool. Yeah, so 
<laughs> that's that's kind of my most recent travel story. And so I, I can totally see that going wrong where someone breaks a leg or something and uh, something horrible happens. Yeah, that's kind of scary. <laughs> well, it ended up a good story for you, I guess. Maybe not the most exciting thing at the time. but <laughs> The thing that doesn't kill you makes a good story. Yeah, exactly. What are you most passionate and obsessed with right now? Uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah? <laughs> are you caught uh, up? I mean... Oh, I, I'm I'm more than caught up. I've read the books twice. I've watched the entire series twice, um, but yeah, there's just I I end up watching these YouTube videos, these theory videos. And the <laughs> amazing thing that the writers for the show did is, if you go back and parse the words, they really put a lot of thought into this. Mm -hmm. Where there is a lot of foreshadowing and a lot of other things in the show, that if you pay attention, all this stuff is already there. Yeah, you just need to to look for it, and they've done a fantastic job with that. Um, so there's all these YouTube videos kind of pulling those little clips together to predict. Yeah, stuff. so you know, like the the theory that uh, Tyrion is not a Lannister; he's a Targaryen. Okay, yeah, yeah. And if you go and look at what Tywin told Tyrion throughout the show, "You are not my son." The only reason I do this is because I cannot prove you're not my son. Blah blah blah. Um, and there's more in the books that you have to read. Yeah. But yeah, he he hates Tyrion not because he's a dwarf, but because he killed his wife, and it was the Mad King that impregnated her. Wow, yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm not completely caught up, but I'm pretty close, so I need to get there. And that's why he sacked the King's Landing and Robert Rebellion because it was a big f you to the King. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good show. That that kind of leads into another question. What what type of media do you consume when you're on the road? I guess um, keeping up with Game of Thrones TV is one of them. Uh, the Kindle has been a lifesaver. Um, I, when I first started out, there, there were no Kindles or anything available, and I had to buy English language books on the road, which are very expensive and very hard to find. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do with the book? I yes, didn't, extra I, weight. Throwing away books or anything. I mean, you can donate them, I guess, in hostels and places like that. But, um, but once I got the Kindle, oh, man, what a lifesaver. I remember I was in Cape Town. This is two years ago. On a boat to take a five-day journey to the island of St. Helena. And... While I was, I, I realized, oh crap, I had nothing on my Kindle. I had just finished my last book. Yeah. So I ran up to the top deck of the ship as it's pulling away from Cape Town, turn on the 3G, downloaded, <laughs> in this case, all the Game of Thrones books. Um, and I had something to read for the trip there and back. And, you know, something like that would have been impossible. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, they tend to be more history podcasts. I listen to a lot of those. You listen to Dan Carlin's? Uh, when he does it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are pretty, pretty I mean, far and few between. Yeah. His, you know, if you made a list of things like what not to do with a podcast, he does all of that <laughs> and succeeds in yeah. spite of it. Yeah, that's true. That's um, a lot of research into those things. I also, you know, there's some shows I watch and I've been able to, to do a lot of online streaming on the road. Uh, now that I have an apartment, I have a, a real nice, you know, cord cutting setup mm -hmm. uh, with Apple TV and things like that. But um, yeah, I'm able to watch pretty much, you know, whatever I need to from there. Actually, I don't even bother watching a lot of shows while I'm traveling anymore because I can come back home and do it. Yeah. Do it in a better environment. So I'll, I'll usually stick to just podcasts and books while I'm traveling. Do you have any favorite books of recent times that you kind of recommend to people? I just finished a biography of Ty Cobb. Um, 
which was fascinating because when you say Ty, are you familiar with Ty Cobb? The name rings a bell, but I can't, I can't put it together so, with who he is. He was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Okay, yeah. Played in the early 20th century. And he had, uh, most people think of him, he's, you know, you'll say, oh, he's like, you know, one of the worst human beings ever. He's this massive racist. He murdered people, you know, all this stuff. And so this guy wrote a, wanted to write a, it's, the book's called Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. So he went to go write a, a book, a biography of Ty Cobb, which hadn't been written in a while. And he, mm -hmm. he was actually doing original research, trying to verify all these stories of Ty Cobb about him killing people, about how if he saw a black person, he would beat him up. And he found no evidence of anything. Wow. That basically, there was a guy who wrote a biography in the 60s who fabricated a bunch of stuff, stole a bunch of Ty Cobb stuff, created fake merchandise, where all these stories came from. And it turns out... <laughs> <laughs> so because he was from the South, he had this reputation, oh, well, he must be a, you know, a racist. Mm -hmm. Turns out his family were abolitionists during the Civil War. His grandfather was a conscientious objector in the Civil War. He's from Georgia. Uh, his father served in the Georgia State Legislature and was voted out of office because he voted against a bill which basically would have uh, hurt education for blacks. Uh -huh. Uh, was a big proponent of integration in baseball, often went to Negro League games, threw out the first pitch and talked to players. Uh, there's this whole wow. host of things. Now, he wasn't a saint. He got in a lot of fights, uh, a lot of fights, and had a very thin skin, had a very quick temper. But this monster he was made out to be is just, it's not true. Not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Someone just completely fabricated a myth. Maybe he pissed that guy off. <laughs> Yeah, and I also read a book called uh, Map Heads by Ken Jennings, the guy who was the big Jeopardy champion. Uh, and it talked about his love of maps and cartography and and different people. It talks about like the National Geographic Geography Bee, yeah. uh, people like myself that go to a lot of countries, uh, just just whole different aspects of uh, you know people that do geocaching, stuff like that. Cool. I'll have to check those out. Do you have any movie recommendations or any anything on that end? Oh, man. This year, movies have sucked. Um, I would recommend... Marco Polo on Netflix, uh, having just been to Central Asia, mm -hmm. um, give it a chance. I started watching the first episode and kind of turned off, and then I went back to it and eventually watched the whole first season, and season two is now out. Um, so is it a fictional series then? Uh, it's a fictionalization of Marco Polo and um, Kublai Khan. Okay. And, you know, so having read biographies of uh, Genghis and Kublai Khan, there are things that are based on kind of sort of true stories, but they're not really presented that yeah. treated as, as kind of fiction. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it, it, there's, there's an L a kernel of truth in some of the things. Um, and then, you know, uh, certainly not a new movie by any stretch, but I think, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made, uh, if you've not seen it, watch Lawrence of Arabia. Oh yeah. That's a classic. Uh, on the biggest screen you can or the best monitor you can. And that was what, 70 millimeter they shot that one on? Yes, and they did a 4K restoration of it. Oh, and it was on Netflix beautiful. a while ago. And I got a 4K TV. And it was it looked like it was shot yesterday. I mean, That's it was amazing. so beautiful. And I, I saw Lawrence of Arabia the first time. It must have been in the late 80s in 70 millimeter on a gigantic parabolic <laughs> 70 millimeter screen. And uh, it was probably the best movie experience I ever had in my life. Wow, that's that's a good recommendation. I'll have to look for the the 4K version of that. I have, I think the last time I watched it was probably on little DVD, small screen somewhere. <laughs> um, 
Do you have any final advice for someone that's maybe considering doing some long-term travel? What do you normally say? Uh, do it. Yep. <laughs> Save up some money. You know, don't. And, you know, the, the one thing I always say is the ability to adapt is more important than the ability to plan. Before you go on a big trip, you're going to get all the books and the guidebooks and you're going to do all this stuff and you're going to plan and just don't because day one, your plans are going to change. You're going to meet new people. You're going to discover new things mm -hmm. and just schedule it so you can kind of go along with the flow and you can often do things cheaper uh, if you plan them on the ground, uh, find transportation or lodging when you arrive in a place. So what I'll often do is maybe if I, if I arrive in a place for the first time, I might get a hotel room for the first night, you know, I'll book that ahead of time. Uh, and then from there, I just kind of make it up as I go along. Do you think people sometimes, especially with the internet now, get in, get into like information overload and they just paralyze themselves to doing too much research or planning? I don't think so. Uh, there's certainly a lot available, but I think your best information is always going to come from the people you meet while you're there. Especially like if you stay at a hostel, let's say you're, you're in Southeast Asia and Bangkok and you want to go to Angkor Wat and you'll meet people who are just there. Yeah. And they can tell you what's happening right now. You know, maybe there's a road that's closed or whatever. Um, that's always the best information that you're going to get. Yeah. So talk to people around you, locals and yeah. travelers. Makes sense. Where can people find you online? I mean, you got your blog, everything everywhere. I am very easy to find. Uh, just search for my name. Uh, it'll pretty much come up Gary Arndt. Actually, if you search for Gary and travel on Google, I'm the first thing that'll come up. Nice. Uh, the website is everything-everywhere.com, and I'm on every major social platform except Snapchat because <laughs> I I hate Snapchat. So I just got an email this morning that Instagram is basically trying to do Snapchat now. So yeah, they just uh, I like Instagram a lot more than Snapchat. I have a much larger following there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't know if I'll use the new features though. All right, Gary, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can follow me, John Jerko, at John Jerko on Twitter and Instagram. You can find out more about Odyssey and News, including the show notes for each episode at odysseyandnews.com. We now have a separate Odyssey and News Instagram feed where we'll be posting audio teasers for each episode, along with photos from our guests. On the website, I'm including three to five takeaways for each episode, so you can get some value out of what we covered at a glance. Remember, you can find us on all of your favorite platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Folks, we spend hours every week preparing for the show, editing interviews, and putting together bonus content for you to enjoy. If you like what we're doing, we would love your support. You can now donate a small amount to us one time or monthly by going to the website and clicking donate. Even a couple dollars goes a long way. You can pay for a coffee that keeps us sane for the week or keep our web hosting bills paid up. Most importantly, please take a couple of minutes to go to iTunes to subscribe and rate the show. It's the only way the show gets noticed in this world of never ending content. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, follow your true north.